Om Satyena Om Satyena Labhyastapasa Yesatma Samyajnana Brahmacharyena Nicham Antaha Sharirehi Jyotir Mayohi Shubraha Yam Bhashanti Yathayaha Kshinadoshaha Om Shanti 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 That indivisible self, the Atman, is realized by continence, moderation, wisdom and knowledge, truth and austerity and veracity, all constantly cultivated. When mental impurities dissolve, then the seer beholds it, radiant and ever pure, existing everywhere, even here in this very body. Om peace, peace, peace. May peace be unto us, may peace be unto all. Om Hari Om. Today is the 14th of September, Ides of September, and we meet here at the SRV Retreat Center on the Big Island of Hawaii, on the slopes of Mauna Kea, to study lofty teachings of Sri Krishna, which were begun early in Janmashtami month, August, and from which we took a slight break from last week due to my lecture at the New Thought Church on the Kona side of this island. But now we return and as to the immediate teachings, we completed chapter 3 of Bhagavad Gita. We're going through it according to a condensation of the teachings of the Gita which I've made, in which I've just extracted certain slokas out of the Gita. I've mentioned before that many of you have studied the Gita with me from cover to cover, page 1 to the very end. And some of you have studied it with me by even learning some of the Sanskrit slokas and studying sloka by sloka. Some have learned it just by various discourses over the some 15 years I've been teaching it. But in this case, I'm selecting certain slokas out of each chapter. As you know, there are 18 chapters, six given to karma yoga, six given to bhakti yoga, and six given to jnana yoga, that is, the yogas of action, selfless action, we should say, and the yogas of devotion to the Lord, and the yogas of knowledge or wisdom. Trisatkam, therefore, the Bhagavad Gita is called the sets of three sixes. Those uh, are well known to the commentators of the Bhagavad Gita. And we are in the fourth chapter, so we're still in the Karma Yoga section. This, of course, means that we're getting mainly teachings on the yoga of selfless works, unmotivated works or selfless action, even action and inaction. And in this chapter, Sri Krishna goes into that action which is to be done as obligatory, that action which is forbidden, since it's karma-bearing, and that action which is no action at all, akarma, the very enigmatic phrase which 
suggests to us that there is a way of doing work in which no karma will accrue, which of course would be the various uh, works of the seers and saints that we studied in our tradition and in other wisdom traditions. In chapter three, a week before last, uh, I won't do a, a review, but I will say that we ended up with that teaching from Sloka 38 and 39, wherein Krishna talks about desire as being the foe of the wise. To quote from Sloka 38, he says, as fire is enveloped by smoke, as a mirror by dust, as an embryo by the womb, so too is knowledge covered by desire. In Sloka 39, he goes on to say, knowledge is therefore covered, Arjuna, by the insatiable fire of desire, the constant foe of the wise. And at that point, there is a teaching in the Gita wherein Krishna discusses the hierarchy of creation. From this Atman, which is the son of knowledge, self-effulgent, Svayam Jyoti, that light filters down into the intellect. And that intellect then informs the mind. And then the mind informs the senses. And then the senses inform the body. The body which is especially insensate. That is, it's uh, like a automaton, especially without the energy of prana and the thought force of mind, the insight of intellect, and of course the light of consciousness which comes from the singular and superlative Atman, the indivisible self which we were just chanting about. So we hear from the teachers about the teaching of desire, yet very few follow it. <coughs> that is, since we see that the saints and sages of various traditions reach this high plateau of spiritualization and insight because they have quelled their desires or because they have attenuated their desires or at least have them under control, then you would think that all beings would see the blissful and peaceful state of mind of such beings and then follow suit, use them as exemplars. But that's not the case, most of humanity. They like to fan their desires. They want to increase their pleasures. They want to gain more objects material benefit and so forth, which is not, according to dharmic teachings, a sin in itself, unless, of course, it's done simply for the sake of pleasure and materialism. If it's done as a way of, a, of um, spiritual and material well-being, then it leads to the highest. So this teaching is there to help guide us. But in a more, on a more intricate level, there are teachings of karma, vikarma, and akarma. That action which is to be done, which is obligatory, that action which is forbidden by scripture, and that action which is no action at all. Particularly of notice, vikarma, this forbidden action, one would think that it carries with it only a moral, immoral kind of implication, that there are things you should do and should not do because they're bad and good, but actually Krishna and Vedic Dharma, in particular Sanatana Dharma overall, 
quite often calls to our attention the disparate nature of, of works. That is, how some good works can result in bad effects, and how some seemingly bad works can come out with a good outcome. That being the case, then the intricate web of karma is very imbricately woven, and, and beings have a, a very difficult time extricating themselves from it. They're quite often then in confusion and doubt about how to proceed. An indeterminate, sort of ambivalent set of mind where beings suffer. And according to Bhagavad Gita and the commentators, this accrues to the greatest sin. According to those teachings, the greatest sin is revolving on the wheel of birth and death and ignorance. If one knows one's true nature, one can easily get off that wheel of birth and death and live only as Atman. So in the teaching of the Bhagavad Gita, chapter 4, the yoga of renunciation of action and knowledge, Krishna teaches us these three different kinds of actions, karma, vikarma, and akarma. Here at the end of chapter 3, he's back again talking about the fire of desire. Avrittam jnana, kamarupenam, he says. That is, inherent knowledge is obscured by desire. Now, it brings up several nice aspects of the teaching. Inherent knowledge, what does that mean? If you made a contemplation of terms, which is a very wonderful thing to do, think about words. Some people uh, just cross words off their list, you see. They're not interested in words. They say, oh, that's just book learning and so forth. But if you were to contemplate on terms and words, especially these ancient Sanskrit terms, rendered into some sort of lucent English, then you'd find great implications there. Here we find Krishna is talking avrittam jnanam kamarupena, that inherent knowledge is veiled by desire. But what if a person said, my knowledge is being veiled by desire, then the emphasis would be on desire, wouldn't it? But what if you were to put the emphasis on inherent knowledge? Water the flowers instead of the weeds. Inherent knowledge, he must mean there's some knowledge within me. Now in our secularized, materialized society, the whole emphasis was put on knowledge. Secular, religious, both it had a sort of dualistic undertone to it. In other words, back in ancient times, in the time of the Rishis, even preceding the time of the Gita, the Upanishadic era and the Vedic era, we found teachings coming from great luminaries like Patanjali, in which he made seven great statements. We won't go into all of them right now, but the second one is, all knowledge lies within you. That was one of the great conclusions of that era when they studied Maya, this projected universe, and when they studied their own inner self, Antaryami, and when they studied, through meditation, Brahman, the Absolute Reality. Now, we're used to proceeding by gaining knowledge from outside. We feel like it has to be pursued. But what if we were to make a subtle shift in our consciousness and realize, say, via the, the revelatory teaching that was just given, that everything is vibration and everything proceeds from Atman to intellect to mind. 
to energy or prana, to senses and then to body. If we followed this hierarchy of creation in the Gita and we took it as actual, well, Krishna must uh, be talking truth here. He's a cosmic soul. He must know what he's talking about. What if I were to take him literally? Then I would see that all knowledge would proceed from Atman. That is, there's something beyond the intellect. The intellect is like the moon shining at night. It thinks it shines, but it's shining by borrowed light. It gets its light from the sun. So the sun, in Vedic terms, is that Atman, Atmagyan, the true knowledge. It's self-effulgent. It borrows light from no one, nothing. In that very sense, those Vedantic dictums are meant to tell us, convey to us, that all knowledge is inherent within us. All we have to do is access it. Now, if that access is being blocked, then we gravitate towards teachings like this. What is it that's veiling my knowledge? The, the smoke of desire is veiling is failing the fire of my inherent knowledge. So then I better begin to attenuate and control my desires. That can be done by fulfilling your desires, that is, fulfilling your desires in Brahman, dharmically, in ways that are non-violent, non-harmful, beneficial to all beings. In order to do that, you would have to know the distinction between karma, akarma, and vikarma, wouldn't you? You'd have to know what actions accrue karma, what actions are obligatory, things you should do that benefit yourself and your society, and what action is no action at all, what's called inaction, a karma. There's such a thing as that, which is an enigma to most people nowadays. What if on the political level we were to take these teachings into that arena? What should we do? What should we not be doing? And what can we do that will accrue no negative karma? So snapping off these chains is to go beyond Rajas, Tamas, and Sattva and get to a state of equilibrium. That equilibrium is brought about by one's adept discrimination. First between what's real and unreal, or what's substantial and what's non-substantial, and then uh, in the field of action, apply that same teaching. So these connections are made in the Bhagavad Gita, and Sri Krishna is very adept at that. And as we launch into chapter 4, we see as I've put on the board here, he starts talking about param para praptam, evam para para praptam, imam raja rashayo vidu, sakalenaha mahatta yoga nashtaha param tapa. He means to say, this imperishable yoga, transmitted in regular succession, was known by the royal sages, but by the long efflux of time it has decayed in this world. So he has this, well, speak about inherent wisdom. He has a wisdom which most souls would be shocked to possess if they could even contain it. Knowing this, he still acts for the overall benefit of the multitudes. Remember in chapter 3 we talked about lokasamgraha two weeks ago. Lokasamgraha means to have an eye or a mind for the guidance of the multitudes. That's a very, very subtle thing. As Christ said in his time, you can't strew pearls before swine, so you can't go about 
giving this non-dual knowledge out to anyone, those who are non-interested. You can't force it upon them. Even those who are interested sometimes make a mockery of it. Oh, well, if God is in me, then I can do anything. You see, and then they go against the tenets of the scriptures, and as Sri Krishna says, they come to ruin. So it's a very subtle art, both guidance and following. Guru-disciple relationship is a, is a very intricate thing based on this subtle art of spirituality. But this sloka reveals up many of those teachings. He said that the imperishable yoga was transmitted in regular succession. So there we have the idea of parampara praptam. Sometimes we call it guru parampara. There are certain realized beings who start a lineage and transmit this wisdom down through the centuries so that it can remain present in the world and help aspiring beings. So that's one shade of teaching which comes out of this. Arjuna says, well, how do you know this? Vivasvat was an ancient seer, and Krishna says, I taught this knowledge to Vivasvat way back, many, many centuries ago. And Arjuna says, how can that be? You're here before me now. And then Krishna deigns to inform him by saying, Oh, well, you see, Arjuna, you don't know any of your lifetimes, but I know all mine. I'm aware of every lifetime I've taken. So this Ishvara form, this wave rising in the ocean of Satchitananda, as Sri Ramakrishna says, is in complete knowledge of every form it took. Now, when you talk about rebirth, you see some people sort of use the term tongue-in-cheek, oh, yes, I was Queen of England in my last lifetime, or I was this and that form. But the knowledge of, that Krishna possesses is based on the fact that he was never a form. It's a very subtle thing. Krishna knows that each wave that rose in the ocean was non-actual, that he was never the form. He was always the ocean. He's always the essence and never the structure. So he, when he looks back on his lifetimes, he doesn't say with pride or with hope or out of pretense or out of complete fallacy, I was such and such a personality, I was such and such an ego, because the personality and the ego are non-actual. Only the essence pervading through was actual. So he doesn't get caught in the trap of identifying with name and form, whether it be in the present day, in his present form, or in all the forms that preceded. So his knowledge is grounded in non-duality. Arjuna hasn't yet gotten grounded in non-duality. He's still ignorant. He still doesn't know that this body-mind mechanism is a projection of maya. This personality is just a line drawn on water. It'll soon disappear. And that his true essence is Brahman. When he awakens to that, he'll be illumined. He'll be enlightened. And Krishna is there to make sure that that's going to happen. So you can see how in this one beautiful sloka, several shades of teaching are given by Sri Krishna to his beloved disciple Arjuna, right there on the battlefield of Kurukshetra. It's not going to make any deeper an impact on a person than when he's right there about to lose his life in battle, or have to slay his friends and his teachers and some of his relatives which are assembled on the opposite side of the army. See, it's a very, very pregnant moment. It's very, very volatile moment. So these teachings are really sinking in deep to Arjuna's mind. 
there's like the calm before the storm, this chariot drawn up between these two armies, and Krishna standing there revealing this inherent knowledge to Arjuna. Shades and shades of it, pearl after pearl. These aren't pearls being strewn before swines. These are pearls being strewn before an adept warrior who is trained in all the subtle arts, all the angas, the vedangas of Vedanta, but not the actual uh, non-dual wisdom yet, already arisen out of his depression, which earlier overtook him, and he's beginning to get very interested in what Sri Krishna is saying. We too are getting more and more interested in what he's saying, I hope. And this second sloka begins to introduce some of the fasts of that to us. This imperishable yoga, transmitted in parampara-praptam form, was known by the sages of old, but by long efflux of time it decayed in this world. He's going to talk about that more later when he talks about the threefold purpose of the divine incarnation. Why does this divine incarnation come and take human form? There's three reasons for that, but that's jumping ahead for now. Let's leave and go on to Sloka 6, which is called Atmamaya. That's a nice word, the dream power of the Absolute. Ajopi san avyayatma bhutanam ishvaropi san prakritim svam adishtaya sambhavami atmamaya. Though I am ever unborn, imperishable, and the Lord of all beings, yet subjugating my prakriti, I come into being by my own maya. Prakriti means manifested and unmanifested nature. All the possibilities for creation five elements and all their permutations, the various worlds, these cosmic imperatives of time, space, and causality, all beings and so forth, these come forth from prakriti, nature. And that nature is all projected by Atmamaya. We were just talking about Atmic Sankalpa, Atmic Vikalpa, the very initial urge to create. When the Indivisible one divides itself into two, Shakti and Shiva, and between the two conjoining of those, the whole creation is born in all its various permutations. So he talks about this dream power of the Absolute, which I said is very unique to Vedanta and to the philosophy of India, ancient Bharat, they called it. And another place in the Bhagavad Gita he talks about it as Yoga Maya. This is my power of unveiling. All beings are projected forth. They live in that Maya and then they are drawn back into it. They're unmanifested state in the beginning, then they're in a manifested state in the middle, and at the end, after death, they're in an unmanifested state again. This is a wheel of birth and death. This is projection of creation, preservation, and destruction. And all the beings who, by brooding on the objects of the senses, they believe in evolution, they believe in time, they believe in space, they believe in life and death. All these things are non-natural, because Brahman is never born and never dies. You are never born and you never die. 
but you're imagining yourself to do so by belief in the body-mind mechanism and its actuality, when it's the dream power of the absolute. Even if the thing is taken as a theory and sounds a little strange to you, it's still something very worthy of contemplation. You go against the grain when you think about it, because the secularists, they want you to believe in evolution. They want you to believe that this march of time is real, that the body-mind mechanism is real, that your separate individual personality is real. But how real can it be? More that it's transitory and ephemeral, and it doesn't persist. Otherwise, why aren't you remembering all your previous births? And if there is only one birth, then if that's life and death, you can have it. See, Your eternal nature is something much, much more galvanizing, more inspiring to contemplate. And that's one of the tactics Krishna is using to raise a depressed Arjuna up off his knees and return him to his noble self again. So he has to tell Arjuna about Atmamaya, about Yogamaya, the dream power of the Absolute, how it can project worlds, how that it doesn't take six days to create the universe, nor is it going to evolve it over trillions of years. It's there when you open your eyes, it's gone when you close it. It's there when you open your eyes, when you awake, when you go to sleep, it's gone again. When you go into deep sleep, it's gone. When you go to death, it's gone. When you go into samadhi, certainly it's gone. That is, those beings who have gone into non-dual samadhi have seen the dissolution of name and form right before their very eyes. And therefore have come out of that state, a few of them, to tell others about the infinite nature of your true self which is the only thing which will dispel all doubt and put to death all fear. It'll make doubt doubt itself, it'll make fear afraid of itself, and it'll put death in its own grave, as my teacher used to say. That one enigmatic piece of non-dual information. So that's why I say these two things are ever on the minds of the seers. The indivisible Brahman and its maya, its power to project, create, preserve, destroy, and withdraw creation. Those things are amazing things that they never tire of pondering. But they ponder them from a witness standpoint, a detached witness standpoint. Others get sucked into them. They have no idea that there's such a thing as an indivisible Brahman nor that it's a projecting power of maya which they're moving about in, nor that it's a dream, that it's non-actual or the such things. They're like a weed in the enchanted garden of a dream being had by a wizard in a fairy tale being read by a child in a storybook. None of it's true. Only the child reading is true. That truth is you. That is your true nature. And that's what Krishna is trying to get Arjuna to awaken to. Once and for all, he can then go into battle, slay and be slain, 
and know the whole thing to be non-actual. That's true fearlessness. That's true renunciation. And the truth be known, it's also true ahimsa, non-violence, because nothing can be harmed, nothing can harm him, because he's never the body-mind mechanism, nor any of the movements or actions or things that's happened. That teaching applies on lots of levels, on the level of your ganam, your your discrimination, and also on the level of your karma, the kinds of various actions you do. So he says, though I am ever unborn, I am imperishable, the Lord of all beings, yet subjugating my prakriti, I come into being by my own maya. He's the nameless, formless essence. He can then create his own form and associate with it, all without being caught in the idea that it's real or it's actual. Just like a spider can project a web, gad about on it, catch things in it, and then draw the web back inside of itself without ever being caught in it. That's what uh, the Lord and his Maya is like. In this Soka 6, we find out about the dream power of the Absolute. Possibly some of you have read Ram Prasad's great poems, Divine Mother of the Universe, Visions of the Goddess, and Tantric Hymns of Enlightenment by Rumpersad, a great poet, saint of Bengal. I'll read you one or two to give you an idea of this Atmamaya, this dream power of the Absolute. A goddess of revolutionary wisdom, her terrible garland of freshly severed heads, inspires complete renunciation. Of birth and death, of concepts and conventions, this cosmic drama she demonstrates clearly is her own magical display. O Mother, you have taught me to address reality with your most tender name, awakening the divine madness of love in me, so I'm constantly weeping your name. Where did you discover a name so sweet and replete with the nectar of timeless awareness? Citizens of the mundane realm call me the crazy poet of the Cosmic Mother, even members of my own family deride me. But would I stray from your way because of any opinions, beloved Kali? Limited minds may form whatever judgment they please. I will only continue to sing Kali, Kali, Kali. Conventional honor and dishonor are equal to me. I have turned away from Mother's shadow play and made her dancing red-soled feet, her dynamic wisdom essence the meaning and goal of my existence. Merged in her gaze of non-duality, I no longer even hear the misguiding chatter of the world. So he calls this Maya Mother's shadow play. He's not going to get s stuck in shadows anymore. There's a nice teaching by Shankara in the Viveka Judamani, which he calls the different bodies. There's the reflection body. I look in the water and see. And uh, then there's the shadow body when the sun is there and I'm here and my shadow gets reflected there. And there's the dream body, a body I think I am in dream. And then there's this physical body. They're all equally illusory. None of them are real. Why am I thinking myself to be this material form which is born and dies? So he gives that teaching of the five different bodies 
to illustrate the illusory nature of embodiment. That's a part of the shadow play, you see. And Ram Prasad says here, I've merged in her gaze of non-duality. I no longer hear the chatter of the world. That is, this misguided opinions about the reality of evolution and birth and death and disease and old age and, and time, space and causality. You see, these are all part of her maya. I don't need to be concerned about them. I need to be focused on non-duality. I need to have made my eye single. Then I'll know the truth. Thine eye be single, thou shalt know the truth. In another poem, Ram Prasad sings, Who is this mystic woman of sheer loveliness? The harmony of her noble features is illumined by the mysterious glow of the dark moon on her forehead. Vigorously she strides throughout the battleground of relativity, tresses of power flowing wildly like a giant tree in a midnight storm body black as the blackest new moon night totally alive with the youth of timelessness no garment can cover or even touch her with two left hands she bears the sword of non-dual wisdom and the severed head of mundane convention with her two right hands she demonstrates motherly protection and boundless generosity I am transported in ecstasy. I am absorbed utterly. Unimaginable and inconceivable is her beauty. She manifests as eternal goddess, as etheric beings, and as earthly women as well. Lord Shiva, the knower of reality, the fearless one on whom seekers of transcendent truth rely, casts away his divine form at her feet of bliss. With her indescribable love, she has now destroyed the very destroyer of death, Shiva himself. After stealing away the hearts of her lovers, she disappears into a storm of transformation, reappearing again as cosmic dreamer, her enlightened laughter so intense it awakens sacred terror in the hearts of beings. Racing across the green and blue planets, she leaps into the blackness between stars, devouring every participant in the war of illusory opposition, soldiers, chariots, horses, weapons. This awestruck poet reminds humanity, you know almost nothing about the mother's grandeur. She is the infinite dream power of reality. She is the dynamic play of consciousness. The one who sports as divine love incarnate, Krishna, of the tender human heart, is the very one who rages blissfully as Kali, consuming names and forms entirely. Both embody non-dual wisdom. Meditate on his flute and her sword as one. And that's exactly what we're doing here when we read Bhagavad Gita. We're reading the non-dual wisdom of Sri Krishna who knows himself all his incarnations, all the way back to his inceptionless inception. He's the Ishvara way rising out of Brahman, but he's rising out by the power of who? Divine Mother of the Universe. Herein called Kali by Ram Prasad, the, the Bengali poet saint. So he very distinctly echoes Sri Krishna's teachings in the Gita when he says, she is the infinite dream power of reality. The power to project, 
worlds in space and time. So, dreamer awake, dreamer awake. That is, are you the dream or the dreamer? Ramprasad thinks he's going to make her red soul dancing feet the object of his meditation and forget about her shadow play. So this is what's meant in part, at least, by Atma Maya. I wanted to demonstrate it a little bit through teachings, but also through poems, especially that last poem, which is so correlative to Bhagavad Gita, where, wherein we find Sri Krishna's flute and Kali's sword are to be seen as one thing, the tender love and the awestruck non-dual wisdom which proceeds from such revelation. In Sloka 8, which is the third entry on the board, we find what I mentioned earlier, the threefold purpose of the divine incarnation. Paritrana sadunam, vinashaya dushkritam, and dharma shamstapana. What do those three terms mean? Actually, he says, for the protection of the good, for the destruction of the wicked, and for the establishment of dharma, I am born age to age. So a very good teaching to give after he's just told Arjuna that he taught Vivashvat, the ancient wisdom, many centuries ago. Because everyone knows Vivashvat was a luminary way back in the Vedic times, you see. And here they are in the battlefield of Kurukshetra in a more current time. So after he says, well, yes, I know all my incarnations, then he comes forward and makes a declaration as to his own Ishvarahood. Of course, Arjuna probably isn't seeing it that way. It's not going to really impress itself in his mind until the 11th chapter, Vishwarupa Darshanam, when his mind gets blown completely by seeing Krishna's cosmic form. Chapter 11, we'll get to that in weeks to come. But here, there's a precursor, a sort of an echo, a reminder, a hint, or a key to that. And Krishna says, for the protection of the good, destruction of the wicked, and establishment of dharma, I am born from age to age. So dharma samstapana, that's establishment of the dharma. In order to establish dharma, you're going to have to break down the old dharma. That is, when the sailing ship has barnacles that are impeding its forward motion, you get down there and you start chipping away so that it can sail forth. That's what in effect, an avatar does from age to age. Gets rid of the barnacles, the encrustations in the mind of living beings who have fallen into doubt about their true nature, about the nature of this projected maya, and various other things. What to do, what not to do, how not to do at all, as he's about to tell us in, in a sloka coming up. So dharma shamstapana must be a very, very important thing to the avatar, this Ishvara form, because we see those beings coming again and again, although it's very hard to trace. There's a, actually a path called Avataravada. It's the path of those who, who spend their whole time looking at the various manifestations of Ishvara, trying to trace them back and find the connections. It's one of the some 35 or 40 different paths in Sanatana Dharma that I've gathered, called Avataravada. So all of us who are SRV devotees and initiates, we are adherents to that path because we are finding Sri Ramakrishna and Holy Mother 
the Rama and Sita, the Radha and Krishna of this age, right here before us in our own time, in a yuga called Kali Yuga, whose problems and issues and concerns are very intense. Well, they say, easier to see the light when it's dark out, <laughs> easier to recognize it. So this is a good time. I mean that in two ways. One is that it is the Kali Yuga. There is a lot of ignorance about. But when that becomes obvious to you, then you can gravitate easily toward the light. You can see the difference. And a second way that it's very important is that we know that after avatars made an appearance on this planet, that we see the breakdown of the old dharma happening and a, an increase of many, many great achievements on all levels of human endeavor. Think of it, Sri Ramakrishna, 1836 to 1886, is it? Some 50 years of life. Since 1886, what's happened to humanity? It would be a very interesting uh, study uh, to, to undertake to see what's happened since Sri Ramakrishna has lived and passed on this planet in this particular body. And Swami Vivekananda has told us, Behold, Sita's beloved has come again. That one who once broadcasted the message of the Bhagavad Gita on the battlefield of Kurukshetra with a voice like a lion's roar. This is one of the beautiful songs he wrote. So he saw Sri Ramakrishna and recognized that great soul, that great cosmic soul, and uh, knew that what Krishna was saying in the Gita was happening right there, and is happening right now, that there's a reestablishment of the Dharma going on, which necessitates the undoing of the negativities of the old Dharma. And Vinashaya Dushkritam, that all the de evils and ignorances that have culminated to result in such an evil are being destroyed. Vinashaya Dushkritam. And also Paritrana Sadunam, that he's going to protect all those beings who are devoted to truth. Sometimes they say there's a fourth reason that Avatar comes to Earth, and that is so that those who love God in form can get a glimpse of him. So that's been also stated. Now I'd hope to get through about four more slokas. Let's go on to sloka 17. The three types of karma. Here's where, as I was telling you earlier, karma, vikarma, and akarma apply. He says, karmano hi api bodhavyam, bodhavyam cha vikarmanaha, akarmanas cha bodhavyam, kahana karmano gatihi. This is sloka 17, chapter 4. It is needful, Arjuna, to discriminate action, to discriminate forbidden action, and to discriminate inaction. For inscrutable is the way of karma. Doing all work for service of God and mankind, selflessly, without desire for the fruits, and with non-attachment to the result. That's the essence of karma yoga. Shall we read it again? Chapter 2. Seek to perform your duty, but lay not claim to its fruits. Be you not the producer of fruits of karma, neither shall you lean only towards inaction. Perform your actions being verily 
fixed in yoga, renounce all your attachments, be even-minded in success and failure, for equilibrium of mind is yoga. Motivated karma is far inferior to that performed with equanimity of mind. Take refuge in evenness of mind, Arjuna, for wretched are the result seekers. The one fixed in equanimity of mind frees oneself in this life from dualities like virtue and vice. Therefore devote yourself to yoga, for work done to perfection is verily yoga. The wise, imbued with evenness of mind, renouncing the fruits of their actions, freed from the fetters of births and death, verily go to that stainless state called Brahman. So we dip back into chapter 2, just in case any of us have forgot the parameters of karma yoga. If you were to be an advocate of the Bhagavad Gita, an adherent to Ishvara, Sri Krishna's teachings, then this is how you must do all your work. And each time you do a work, at the end of the day, part of the reason Holy Mother said why we meditate at the same time every day without fail, is that part of your meditation is to look into what you did that day, what happened as a result, bad and good, and to examine it because by doing so you release it. That is, if somebody insulted you, for instance, and you, you have uh, hurt feelings or anger, then by looking at it in your meditation in a detached way, you're able to dissolve the negativity around it. See, and Because why? You think back on the teachings of the Gita and all the ways that Sri Krishna says you should be doing your work and you realize that it means nothing. If you doubt it, then you can look back further in the teachings of Sri Krishna and find out that the whole thing is a projection of Maya and it means absolutely nothing. It's the dream power of the Absolute. What's real, the dream or the dreamer? And besides, are you going to dream or awake? And what's the purpose of your meditation? Is to awaken. What's the purpose of your work? Purification of mind. And that's it. You can't help anyone can't help yourself. The only reason you do work is to purify your mind. The Lord has given you the work, but not the fruits. To the work you have the right, but not to the fruits thereof. This is the strong teaching of karma yoga. Now you can proceed by jnana yoga, and you know how difficult that is. You're going to have to study the scriptures, swadhyaya. You're going to have to memorize the slokas. You're going to have to comprehend the non-dual wisdom, and so, so forth and so on. You can proceed by bhakti yoga, and we know how wondrous a path that is, but how long it takes, according to Swami Vivekananda. How sweet it is, but it's the slow boat to China. You can proceed by the yoga of meditation and so forth, but if you're going to proceed by the yoga of action, you see that it too has its very strict and stark concomitants. There are tenets there you're going to have to follow that are very powerful and very demanding of your attention. Equilibrium of mind is yoga. Work done to perfection is yoga. So he's telling you, you can get to union through work, union with Brahman, but you have to know the parameters of it, the, the laws, the rules, the principles, and so forth. So just in case we'd forgotten what Krishna said about work and how uncompromising the person who does it must be, we look back and note that, that set of slokas, which, by the way, if you want to read them, are slokas 47 through 51 
of chapter two. As I was saying earlier, very difficult to discriminate what to do, what not to do, and how not to do anything. If you are going to become the master idler, the master idler is one who is so merged in the gaze of non-duality, which Rampersad just mentioned, that even when they work, they do nothing. How is that possible? They have no motives. Why did the work of the Christ and the work of Lord Buddha and the work of other great souls last longer than anyone else's? Because they had no motive for it. Did they even come to save the world? Did they come to bring peace? Conventional wisdom says yes, but what did Christ say? I've not come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword. And with that sword, I will divide father from daughter, mother from son, and so forth. He meant, he will show the difference between ignorance and realization, and he will reveal the truth. That's the reason why Avatar is here. For the protection of the good, destruction of the wicked, and for establishment of the Dharma. That's truth. So he's not going to compromise that ideal, no matter what other people say about him. Whether the Pharisees ostracize him, or whether the Romans crucify him, is not going to make any difference. He knows he's not the body-mind mechanism. Oh Lord, why have you forsaken me? They thought that he lost his faith on the cross. But that song was the title of one of the hymns in the hymnal of the day. Oh Lord, why have you forsaken me? He was showing everyone, even from the cross, that he was the birthless, deathless Atman, if you want to put it in Vedantic terms. That birds have nests and foxes have holes, but son of man has no place to lay his head. That man does not live by bread alone, but by something far more spiritual. That he was the son of the father and he lived at the uh, right hand of the father, you see. His father who, who was in heaven. All those teachings taken on a non-dual level, according to Vedanta, reveal some very profound returns to the mind. There's a nice book called The Sermon on the Mount, according to Vedanta, which you can study for some of those teachings. So, how to do no action is a very subtle thing. But it's not going to be easy to arrive there until you satisfy your obligatory duty and find out what not to do. And here you're going to have to define what's positive and what's negative. You could go into a country, like Mao Zedong did, in Tibet, and destroy temples and kill people. And it seems like a bad action. And possibly from the mindset that he was doing it, it was a bad action, and he's going to get his own individual karma from that. But the end result was that Buddhas are springing up all over the United States, Rinpoches, Lamas, and around the world. By rousting out spiritual teachings from Tibet, then they took root everywhere else in the world. So is that a bad thing? Now we have Buddha Dharma everywhere. So what is a negative action? What is a positive action? Should we try and see as God sees, or should we revert to or depend upon our own tiny intellect, the small picture, our own small view of a few years in time? Or should we try and look at Ishvaravada, Avataravada, and see how Avatar looks at embodiment every 500 years or so? through time. What am I going to accomplish then? What have I accomplished so far? All motiveless, because it's all entering into the dream power of Maya to extract people out of the dream, isn't it? 
If you wake them up, then the dream is gone. That's what enlightenment is. You don't labor anymore under the misconception that you're a body in space and time. So you have absolutely no fear. Only renunciation is fearless. That's the only fearless thing in the world. So your renunciation is intact. And you care not for what happens to the body if it comes or goes. Let karma float it down. Body is a result of karma. Let karma take it. But you, O mind, remain posited in non-dual wisdom at the feet of the Lord, to say it in devotional terms. To end the class, we need to study Bahuvidya Yagya, the storehouse of Vedic sacrifices. But it's called the Twelve Yagyas of the Gita. At least that's what I call it. Because if you read those slokas, you'll find uh, that there are those beings who practice Deva Yagya, those beings who practice Ishvara Yagya, Shrotra Yagya, Shabda Yagya, Indriya Yagya, Indriya Karmani Yagya, Dravya Yagya, Tapo Yagya, Yoga Yagya, Svadhyaya Yagya, Pranamaya Yagya, Nichahara Yagya. I'm glad I got all that out, hopefully without a mistake in my Sanskrit. That is all the sacrificers. This world is not for those who don't sacrifice, Krishna says. Then how in the other world? So the idea of yagya then is being explained to Arjuna by Sri Krishna so he knows not only what kind of work to avoid, what kind of work to do, and how to transcend work, but also because there are many beings doing all sorts of works. The key in this sloka is that all karma in its entirety culminates in knowledge, if done rightly. So he gives 12 different kinds of wisdom yagyas here, knowledge yagyas, the knowledge sacrifice. The whole chapter is called How to Offer Your Work in a Spirit of Renunciation of the Fruits into the Fire of Knowledge. So Fire of Knowledge here, Gyan Agni, there are 12 types that he mentions right off the bat. Deva Yagya, offering all your work to the gods. Let's take a sloka, for instance, that we already had in chapter 3. Cherish the gods with this, your sacrifice, and may those gods cherish you. Thus, cherishing one another, you shall reap the supreme good. Cherished by sacrifice, the gods shall bestow upon you all the enjoyments that you desire. A thief, verily, is that one who enjoys what is given without returning them anything. So, again, cognizance of the gods and goddesses, the cosmic powers in the universe, you don't have to personify them uh, anthropomorphically into forms if you don't want. You can just call them energies. But if in the mind's eye you could envision all the worlds and all the celestial beings there, that is the worlds Bur, Bhuva, Svaha, Jana, Tapaha, Satya, Brahma, Loka, uh, all these subdivisions of worlds we find out that are in the imminent the transcendent and the absolute, the three worlds they call it. And there are various subdivisions, then you would find all these souls inhabiting subtler bodies than these physical bodies which we're right now associating with. So Deva Yagya, we see how that's important here. Let's look at it 
in another way, jumping ahead to uh, chapter 7, Sulka 19 through 22. At the end of many births, the man of wisdom takes refuge in me, Arjuna, realizing that Vasudeva, a great lord, is all that is. Rare indeed is that great soul. But those whose discrimination has been led astray by this or that desire go to other gods, following this or that rite or ceremony, constrained by their own nature. Whatever form any devotee with faith wishes to worship, I make that faith of his steady. Endowed with that faith, he engages in the worship of that form, and from it he obtains his desires, which are being actually ordained by me, the Supreme. But the fruit that accrues to those beings of small intellect is finite. The worshippers of the gods go to the gods, Arjuna. My devotees come to me. So, there's another slant on Devayagya. It's a danger. It's also an aid. If you take it in accordance with the teaching of karma vi karma na karma, then it dawns on your mind. Am I offering these things back to the gods with the understanding that they all exist in the one Lord? Is the work I'm doing, even if I think of it as going to Shiva or to Kali or to Lakshmi or to Saraswati or to Jesus or to Buddha, am I in the understanding that those are forms existing in the one Brahman? Then if I am, then my knowledge is, is you see, more enlightened. But you can see how by offering those things to the gods, for the sake of the gods, for some sort of, well, let's say, for instance, desire to go to heaven. I remember my teacher used to say, um, I don't care for post-mortem emancipation, nor do I care for streets running with milk and honey paved with gold. It would be a sticky mess. <laughs> see, So those kinds of things didn't appeal to him. He was a non-dualist. He wanted his, his Brahman here and now, because that's how it is, here and now, in this very moment, in this eternal moment, beyond time, is the realization of the seers. They're, that's how they live in a karma, non-action. Or even when they act, it doesn't accrue karma, so it doesn't matter whether they act or not. Krishna says very clearly in the Gita, in one of my favorite slokas, for those beings, there's nothing to gain by doing an action. There's nothing to lose by not doing an action. So they have a supreme equanimity, which has allowed them to transcend karma manasa, the field of work. That is, they may go on working, but they have no desire for the fruits, and they leave all outcome to the Lord. So to the work you have the right, he tells Arjuna, but not to the fruits. Wretched are the result seekers, give it up. Renounce all karma, action, in jnana, knowledge, in this higher knowledge. Sanyas, do it as a renunciation. And that action, until you can manage the state of a karma or nishkama karma, do it as sacrifice. That's the way I think it is. That's my interpretation of it. That these sacrifices must be ways in which you can purify your mind until you can arrive at such a state where you have that much detachment. You have para-vairagya, supreme detachment. Cherished by yagya, the devas will bestow on you fruits. On the other hand, 
those ones who worship the devas, they go to them, not to me. So, Devayagi is a double-edged sword, isn't it? We must do all work. Everyone must get their due. See, that's what you're offering to the gods. So they had thousands of sacrifices and rituals in which they propitiated various energies that they found out by the time of the Upanishadic era that they were just going from heaven to earth to hell by these ceremonies. That is, when their good karmas gave out, then they were dragged back down to a human body again. And this was a cycle of birth and death, what Buddha was to call Kala Chakra, life in samsara. So, in the Upanishadic age, you find out not to covet the goods of others and not to seek heaven via rites and rituals. So, there was a big change from the early Vedic era when they were, no doubt, doing sacrifice in, uh, in an enlightened way quite often to a time when they tried to find a way beyond the, wor the world of works and the wheel of birth and death that ensued from it, beyond karma manasa. So Deva Yagya, next was Ishvara Yagya. Some yogis perform sacrifices to the gods, others offer the self as sacrifice to the self. What does he mean by that, offering the self by the self? Well, they they say taking on a human body is a sacrifice. It's a yagya. They call him jivatman. Jivatman is yagya. Those terms equate to each other. Because we all know taking on the human body, how many sacrifices we have to perform. And hopefully we can somehow keep our mind in a state of equanimity and, and do those works and keep ourselves balanced and keep our karma neutral or attenuated and come through life with some distilled and definitive wisdom in our possession and not fall victim to the various vicissitudes and problems and attachments and desires that are foisted upon us not only by our own ego but by society by the collective consciousness of mankind even by the gods so uh, this is a, a rare kind of sacrifice offering the self as sacrifice by the self. That is, you offer everything to Ishvara, as Krishna is asking Arjuna to do here, teaching him how to do. You s surrender your individual consciousness into the collective consciousness. Self with ego, small s, offered into self as Atman, higher self. Like a river entering into a sea. May we always be like mighty rivers flowing into the sea, losing all name, form, and identity into the ocean of absolute reality. That's a very nice shloka. So that's a very powerful kind of sacrifice to do. Another is Shrotra Yagya. And in fact, Shrotra Yagya and Shabda Yagya, if we follow the commentators, are diametrically opposed types of Yagya. In Shrotra Yagya, it means offering everything into the fire of restraint. So everything of the senses you take and you offer, that is, if you eat a meal, you're not thinking about the taste or the content. You're thinking about nourishing the body only. You take it out as a matter of necessity. You give away all the tastes and all the sensations and feeling. You don't enjoy the meal, necessarily. You're like an automaton. You just eat 
you just walk, you just sleep, you just go. There are beings who practice that kind of very ascetic type of yoga, the yoga of restraint, offering all, everything that comes to the senses into the fire of sacrifice. Now, opposed to that, but of the same goal, same result, is Shabda Yogya. These are beings who try and take the senses and they offer everything into the fire, into the fire of sacrifice to glorify the Lord. So they're using the senses to glorify God. God must be in the senses, therefore, if I put a garland on, I'm putting a garland on God. If I smell a flower, it's God smelling the flower. Whatever I see, taste, hear, touch, and smell, it's all for the sake of the Lord. See? So, in fact, it reminds me of Sri Ramakrishna saying, there are two kinds of yoga in the most general sense of the term. One is Vishnu Yoga, eyes half-closed, aware of the spirit and aware of the world both. Shiva Yoga, eyes completely closed, completely unaware of anything in the world. So there are beings who go through the world in a state of transcendence like Shiva, and then Vishnu, those who glorify the Lord through name and form. Those are two very distinct types of yoga and distinct types of temperaments that vibrate to them. So this is what Krishna means by Shrotra Yagya, Shabda Yagya. So some offer sacrifices to the gods. We talked about that. Some offer the self as sacrificed by the self talked about that. Others often offer the senses into the fire of restraint. They want to uh, have detachment around sense objects. Others offer sense objects as sacrifice into the fire of the senses. Those are those who, as I was saying, uh, Shabda Yoga. Then there's this kinds who offer all the functions of the senses in. Those who offer the breath. Nowadays, it's become almost faddish. You do it to gain longevity, say, or to gain health, or to feel good, sometimes even to gain occult powers. That is, I can transcend death by doing this breathing exercise. So you do this breathing exercise, and you get regulation of the breath and help you transcend death, but there is no death. The highest truth is there's no birth, so how can there be any death? Namritjornashanka, Name Jati Beda. I have no birth, I have no death. Now Pita Janma, I have no mother, no father. Shankara's famous Nirvana Shotkam. So you were doing all this to transcend death when really there was no death to begin with. So how much time did you waste getting this Siddha? This, this little perfection or this little attainment. Better to do this breathing exercise and offer the results back to God. That's a kind of pranakarmani yagya, what he's talking about here. Others offer wealth. Dravya yagya, Krishna says. They offer wealth as a sacrifice. That is, uh, acquiring it by honest means and utilizing it for good purposes then it becomes a form of sacrifice. 
I'm not talking about rich, selfish people who uh, use everything for their own uh, disposition. Others offer austerity. That's for purification. If a piece of iron can be uh, purified by putting it in the fire and reshaping it, scrap iron melted and shaped into some new metal. So they purify this body-mind mechanism by austerity. Sort of a self-purgation, but not to be seen in the sense of mortification of the flesh and that kind of thing is a different thing than what Sri Krishna is talking about. Others offer yoga itself as sacrifice. Their very austerity, their very yoga is as a sacrifice. That is, my desire to be in union with Brahman is my sacrifice. That's what I give to the Lord as my sacrifice. It's probably one of the rare, rarer forms of yoga. That is, one has to be very motiveless to do it. Couldn't have any other agendas, as they say got to be very, very dedicated. Like Ashtanga Yoga, Raja Yoga, the Eight-Limbed Yoga. I'm going to observe the Yamas and the Yamas. I'm going to do Asana and Pranayama and Prachahara, Dharana, Jhana and Samadhi, the Eight-Limbed Yoga. I'm going to do those uh, as my sacrifice. Here's my way of offering everything to you, Lord. This is, my yoga is, is yours. So it's, it's like path practitioner and goal all become one thing. That's why I say it. it takes a lot of dedication. It's very rare. Others, of self-denial and extreme vow, they offer study and knowledge as sacrifice. Sadhyaya, that kind of study, becomes a form of sacrifice too. Some offer sacrifices, the outgoing breath and the incoming breath, restraining the flow of the breaths, solely absorbed in the regulation of the life energy. Sort of prana yogas, very much into uh, life force. And they can regulate it uh, by the incoming and outgoing breath. Nityaharaha pranam, praneshu juvati, others of regulated food habit offer all the pranas gained from food as yagya. And all twelve of these, Arjuna, are knowers of Yagya, and they have their sins destroyed by Yagya. So there are probably many, 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 maybe countless forms of Yagya sacrifice offering to the Lord. But he seems to be saying, do it. And know that they're all done in the field of action, and they all should culminate in knowledge. You, all should, you should get something out of them. Otherwise, we have the old refrain, it's a purposeless life. There's no meaning in my life. I don't know why I'm doing what I'm doing, and so forth and so on. You have this kind of uh, dejection, vishada yoga. It's a different kind of yoga now that we found Arjuna ensconced in, in the first chapter. Arjuna's depression. So the eaters of these nectars, the remnants of sacrifice, go to the eternal Brahman. This world is not for the non-sacrificer. How then any other, Arjuna? So if you don't do sacrifice of that kind in this world, how do you expect even to get to a, another world uh, via that form of sacrifice? Not to speak of getting beyond all worlds. So action must be done as sacrifice in these and other ways. Here let's end with a chant. 
Om Tachnayo Om Tachnayo Ravrani Mahe Gatum Yagyaya Gatum Yenopataye Daivi Svastirastu Naha Svastir Manusebhyaha Urdhvam Jigatu Besajam Sangnavastu Dvipade Sangchatushpate Om Shanti 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 May we consciously and wisely offer all a sacrifice into the great self in full knowledge. May we always revere the Lord of all sacrifices and delight in all offerings made to the mother of all sacrifices. May divine blessings be upon us. May peace be unto the entire human race. May healing, well-being, and prosperity then abide among us. Om peace, peace, peace. May peace be unto us. May peace be unto all. Om Mahadeva.